1: 380 games, close to zero, fans one crippling pandemic, record-breaking amount of Premier League leaders, shocks in the likes of Villa 7, Liverpool 2, Man United 1, Tottenham Hotspur 6, Callum Robinson, West Brom 5, Chelsea 2. The threat of breakaway leagues across a tumultuous 72 hours. In April, the big six were shaken again, Chelsea and Spurs lost their managers in Lampard and Mourinho, Arsenal fans were told to trust the process, Liverpool fans cried foul of injury. West Ham, Leicester, Villa and Everton were super in their attempts to dislodge the six and faint whispers of an all-Manchester title race. Sheffield United suffered second season syndrome, Fulham and West Brom struggled to adapt to a new division and Steve Bruce survived by the skin of his teeth at Newcastle. Southampton pressed Red Bull style amidst another 9-0 catastrophe, Brighton continuously battled with XG and Burnley insisted under Sean Dypes that they are a Premier League club. Crystal Palace and Wolves might be entering new eras with new players and managers leaving and Leeds impressed massively under Marcelo Bielsa and look likely to push on. With all 20 encapsulated in a microcosm, let's get stuck into the 2020-2021 Premier League season. And before we start today, make sure you give us a follow, a like, subscribe, whichever your platform, your podcast platform is that you Take in these podcasts, be it Acast, Spotify and Apple, of which all of which we are on. So let's get into the title race. Numbers one and two, they were Manchester. They were Manchester City, followed by Manchester United. 12 points in the end being the difference. Let's take the first eight matches into account. Manchester City had three wins from eight, three draws and two defeats. Two of those defeats coming in in a mind-numbing 5-2 loss to Leicester at home and a 2-0 Mourinho Masterclass at the uh, Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Meanwhile, Manchester United fared a little bit better Five wins, one draw and three home losses, two of which very, very shocking in the likes of the 3-1 defeat to Crystal Palace, 6-1 to Tottenham Hotspur and a 1-0 defeat to Arsenal. Not a coincidence, perhaps, that both were part of the end of season UEFA competitions. Man City getting to the quarterfinals only to be beaten by Lyon, Man United making the semi-finals, only to be beaten by Sevilla Wolves and Chelsea also played their parts. Wolves started the season with 17 points from 10 games, Chelsea with 19 points from 10 games, slightly higher up than the two aforementioned Manchester clubs. Admittedly, Chelsea's tie was effectively over in the Champions League. They shipped, I think it was seven or eight goals to Bayern Munich across two legs and they were they were out of the Champions League before the uh, before project restart. At this stage, after 10 games, Chelsea were third, only behind Liverpool and Tottenham, both having 21 points from 10 and Mourinho won another big game, that North London derby 2-0. They'd beaten Man City, as we discussed there. Everything looked rosy. Mourinho always won something in the second season at a club, although that trend had died off completely um, with his previous job at Manchester United. Liverpool were just hanging in there. They'd got um, successive injuries to Virgil van Dijk with uh, Jordan Pickford uh, snapping his ACL in a 2-2 Merseyside derby. Joe Gomez had a... a season-ending injury as well. Joel Matty was hanging in in there by by a thread, really, in terms of his fitness, but he would suffer an end-of-season injury only in January. So at this stage, this is where this is where the Premier League season for me completely diverges course. Klopp, Liverpool manager, of course, had a decision to make: go with the youngsters in centre of defence or put middle midfielders in there, patching the, patching it over really with the injury with Fabinho at centre-back and then Jordan Henderson at centre-back. I think in one or two games, both of them played at centre-back. And ultimately, as we see from the end of season form with Nat, Nat Phillips and uh, Reese Williams in there, ultimately Klopp made a mistake because not only did they have a weakness in defence, but removing Fabinho and then Jordan Henderson, Henderson himself who went down with injury in January and February, they also weakened the midfield. They had the lack of influence from the engine room of Henderson behind the defensive screen of Fabinho, and they would win at home to Spurs, and they'd be top on December the sixteenth. The match billed as the, the the match that would settle the title race. We'd had Everton win the league, the lead lead the league rather. They were pushing fan, the fans were pushing songs to the top of the chats and everything. It was going to be a a blue season in terms of Everton. Uh, Southampton had a good run in October and November. They also led for a day or two and Tottenham surrendered their final day at the top of the league with that loss to Liverpool. Bobby Firmino scoring after 90 minutes. All of them dropped off in one way or another, some more than others admittedly with Southampton finishing the season way in the bottom half of the table. Three days after this, top of the table win. Liverpool put seven beyond Palace at Sellers. They were looking ominous really, but then they wouldn't win in five. Wins at White Hart Lane at the London Stadium to a resurgent West Ham kept them in the top four, but only, only just. They were hanging by a thread, but then that injury to Jordan Henderson was the final nail in Liverpool's coffin, really. Uh, By March, they'd fall as far as eighth, losing six of seven games, five of them spectacularly at home after going three or four years without a defeat at Anfield. They'd be back, but more on that later. In the absence of Chelsea, who had just sacked Lampard, who led the league in December as well and Tottenham who were to sack Jose Mourinho and the pretenders of Aston Villa Southampton and Everton they'd all fallen away who was next Leicester they were quietly going about business as they often do they did last season they did this season as well they were without the injuries that crippled them the previous summer you've got new signing of Wesley Fofana being an absolute stalwart in defence even though he had injuries of his own you've got Yuri Tielemans and uh, Wilfred Ndidi in midfield who were absolutely fantastic Ash uh, Harvey Barnes had a, a bit of an injury spell in the second half of the season, but him alongside James Madison were absolute cogs in that wheel, in, in sort of wide positions and in number 10s. Jimmy Vardy's goals gave away slightly in the second half of the season, but in his place, and Anacho, he was banging the goals when one part of the team sagged another would rise up and support. You've got Timothy Castagna, who would be ruled out by injury for a long time. Same with Ricardo Pereira, James Justin as well. All three viable um, viable positions out wide in uh, the wing-back roles. All three of them had fantastic seasons when they were fit and when they were playing. And the big picture was Leicester had the most time spent in the top four the entire season and occupied the Champions League spots from match day one right the way through to match day 37. Another team quietly going about their business as well were Manchester United. They would lose to Arsenal on November the 1st. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang made Old Trafford his dance floor just as Jesse Lingard did to the Emirates numerous times. And after that defeat, they come back and they won four straight, including a 3-2 comeback against Southampton on the south coast, which pretty much established Edison Cavani as one of their key players. He hadn't had a... He'd been signed very late on, which is a baffling decision when you think he's a free agent and he was signed he didn't have a pre-season it took him a good three or four months and it was only really around this time around December, January that Man United were getting the best out of Edinson Cavani and it also kind of neatly worked with uh, Anthony Martial's injury Man United would be the comeback kings they came back to win against West Ham at Sheffield United and the art of that comeback win was alive and well I had a season ticket for Ferguson's last season and they were putting up similar numbers in terms of comeback wins, wins that season as well United would only Drop points against other title hopefuls, Manchester City and Leicester in this time, putting six beyond Leeds in a, a frantic 6-2 in for all in match. Um, but they had reverted to grinding out wins, which is the stuff of champions, as they say. A stoppage time win over Wolves, a scabby penalty against Villa, which for Villa fans, that's probably the second time in as many seasons as they'll hear that. And they got a 1-0 win at Burnley through a resurgent Paul Pogba. And next was a depleted Liverpool. United possibly edged it probably had the best chances, Pogba could have scored again, but in essence, in reality, it was a nil-nil draw. Craven Cottage was three days later, another Paul Pogba goal, another comeback win, the same story for Manchester United. And Pogba, who had been, let's be honest, and probably maybe will continue to be much maligned by the neutral, by certain pundits, not naming any names, but he had found a new rollout on the left. Maybe sacrificing Marcus Rashford, who is on the left but he's been playing on the right he's been playing through the middle, Mason Greenwood of course rotating on that right wing spot as well because for the first time uh, Ferguson, uh, Solskjaer had a midfield double pivot that was established, you've got McTominay and Fred perhaps not the two biggest names that you've ever seen but they served a purpose they were becoming crucial, Pogba was becoming crucial again just when United fans were dreaming of winning the league they were top in January the Furthest into a season they'd been top for quite some time, possibly since Ferguson. They lost 2-1 to Sheffield United, the basement club. A fourth defeat of the Premier League season, all of them at home. And United would become only the fourth Premier League team to be undefeated away from home ever. There was another team going about it quietly up until this point as well, Manchester City. They would rack up, in this time, 15 league wins in a row. They'd win the League Cup. They'd reach the Champions League final, which we'll know the, we'll know the outcome of this coming weekend, and they go close in the FA Cup as well. Dreams of a quadruple were extinguished in that FA Cup semi-final defeat. Pep Guardiola was seemingly on the cards that he would leave over last summer or this summer, but COVID, you'd think, oh, he's postponed his time, He's, he's elongated his time, rather, for another year because of the COVID disaster and the pandemic. But halfway through this season, he signed a new contract. It looked as though he'd outstayed his welcome. In the first half of the season, obviously we discussed that early season form, possibly because of the lack of pre-season and going far in the Champions League the previous season, but they finally hit the ground running. That 15 league wins in a row took us to March the 7th and the Manchester derby, absolutely key in the title race. Without losing outside of that Sheffield United match in terms of United, United had gone from two points in front to 15 points behind, and the reason... Draws before the match international break we had a 0-0 against Arsenal Chelsea and Palace 1-1 against West Brom which was the real sickener and a late point against Everton Calvert-Lewin scoring late on there at Old Trafford not even a 9-0 against Southampton could soothe United or the Manchester derby win in truth it was a 2-0 win at uh, um, City meaning that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer does hold a positive record of a Pep Guardiola 4 wins 1 draw and 3 losses uh, but regardless the title was uh the dreams, the pipe dream of the Premier League title was slipping away from United. Even Man City could lose needless home games, really, in the grand scheme of things, to Leeds and then Chelsea, both 2-1, which only served to prolong the agony for United fans, helping them believe, halving the deficit to eight points with six to play, which struck a few omens with United fans of the 2011-12 season. And when Man City were eight points behind with six to play, of course, Manchester United would be scuppered maybe in part thanks to the uh, the protests got on, getting on the pitch. The fans, which, to be fair, in my opinion, they did so rightly or largely rightly um, to get that game called off, a big game, biggest game of the season in terms of viewership, perhaps. And uh, that meant that they were playing four games in a week. They'd lose two of those to Leicester and Liverpool, which confirmed the title for Manchester City. And in the end, all that was needed, really, the difference between Manchester United winning the title were turning five draws into a win... And that would have taken City to the final day. Can Manchester United push on and win the title next season? For all the talk of a Erling Haaland, a Harry Kane, a Jaden Sancho, what Manchester United really need is a central midfielder. They're absolutely crying out for it. McTominay and Fred in that McFred partnership, they've been doing adequately. Fred's second half of the season tailed off a little bit, but I mean, in terms of a partnership, they're doing okay, but... If you're going to win a title, especially against the Manchester United, the Manchester City team that we're seeing right now, you're going to need something a bit more than OK. When you look at Man City's reinforcements in centre midfield, you've got Fernandinho Rodri, Ilkay Gundy, and obviously a bit further up, you've got Kevin De Bruyne and Bernardo Silva. Obviously a rotating cast of wide men and front players who can seemingly rotate in any one of the top five positions there. Two or three signings, I think, for United are needed for a true title race. I, From a United fan perspective, you'd want a centre-back and a centre-midfield before you'd want a striker and a right-winger, especially since Cavani's extended his contract. Um, the team spirit's there. The tactics, for the most part, are there at Old Trafford. And Solskjaer looks seemingly at home at, at the club. And I think with those two, three signings, a centre-mid, a centre-back and Jaden Sanchez, now's the time to get him even if it is usurping Mason Greenwood or perhaps Mason Greenwood moves more centrally under the tutelage of Cavani and then he's ready to go it alone for the 22-23 season but of course that is long-term thinking and for a long time at Old Trafford they've not had that long-term thinking, have they? But on the other side of the coin are Manchester City now going to dominate? And if you think about it Pep Guardiola wouldn't have re-signed his contract if he was supremely confident of this He's usually gone at clubs by this point. He's um, been at Man City longer than he has been at Barcelona when he was burnt out by the rivalry with Mourinho and Real Madrid at that time. Obviously longer than his time at Bayern ba- ba- Munich, which was three years. And he's evolved Man City ridiculously. The days of the four-three-three and the 2 38s of a Bernardo or David Silva and a Kevin De Bruyne ahead of Fernandinho have been replaced by what is almost a WM, almost a two-three-five. Um I think that's because of Fernandinho, maybe he's reaching limitations in central midfield. So you pack that midfield out with Gundy into the side of him and the one of the left back or the right back they took in whilst the other wing back goes forward. And I'm the other opinion that Pep doesn't quote unquote overthink big games because I think compared to the bog standard viewer, including me, I think he's quite clearly on a different plane to any of these people. Um obviously, the false nine, the strikerless positions. We have seen that being ridiculously successful. Spain at Euro 2012, the proponent of that false nine strikerless was Hungary 6, England 3 at Wembley in 1953, if you really want to get into the history of it, um, where the uh, Hungary uh, attacker Nando Hidaguti was wearing a different number that what England players were used to, he would drift out to the midfield. The England defender would follow him and Hungary would pick them apart again and again and even though admittedly I've not just I've not seen any of that I've just read about it intensively this city side seems a lot like the magical magias of the 50s mm-hmm. Yao Cancelo and Kyle Walker have been absolutely crucial Cancelo playing on the left sometimes playing on the right and um, they took into a central midfield it helps them in times against Dortmund they would box in in Haaland, so there'd be there there'd be two midfielders, two defenders, or even three midfielders around him, not able to get a touch. And Haaland didn't really perform in that Champions League quarterfinal and that is why they're helping out Fernandino, elongating his Man City career by helping him out by adding another by having a, adding another, another body. Instead of having two wing backs completely attacking, flying down the wings, you've got you get one tucking and one flying down the wings because you've got five players up there who are going to rotate anyway. So it doesn't make any sense to add another one and just over overcrowd it when you can have two centre backs, which is primarily going to be a mix of Ruben Diaz, my signing of the season. I'm Rick Laporte or John Stones, and John Stones has been fantastic, he's been rejuvenated for City. And Gundian, he's top scoring for City, and I think it is that top five, front five that you see, then being rotated and Gundian attacking from deep. He's the reason why, that's probably the reason why he's top scoring. Obviously, the lack of Sergio Aguero and Gabriel Jesus and the use of that false nine is why Gundian's top scored for City this season. It's something that Pep Guardiola might not even be thinking about in terms of replacing Aguero, who of course leaves. He left with two goals in his final game in a 5-0 win over Everton, beating Wayne Rooney for the amount of goals scored for one club in Premier League history. Uh, 183 Aguero ended up getting And if this is Pep's overthinking, then what is Roberto Firmino at Liverpool? False nine. A very distinct plan of two wide forwards cutting in. City just do it slightly differently. And I don't think it's overthinking to have a Ferran Torres, a Raheem Sterling, a Phil Foden on paper playing centrally up front because to his use of positional play, making sure exact numbers of players are the same horizontally and vertically. So you've always got that third man run, the fluid interplay between this front five and one wing back. They're all trained in every position. They're all, it's impossible to play against them. You can see from Kevin De Bruyne at Belgium, which we will see this summer, he can go high and wide. You've got Foden and Sterling, they can go through the middle. Ferran Torres as well can, they can all go out wide. Riyad Mahrez is probably more suitable on the, on the right but he's been used centrally as well so if that's overthinking maybe a few more other clubs should overthink their tactics and actually not just play 4-2-3-1-4-3-3-4-4-2 and play simplistic football because this is football as I say on a completely different level and in terms of primary talent title challenges in terms of Man United and Man City I'll add into the mix Liverpool of course they'll be back a fully fit Liverpool's side would still strike fear If Virgil van Dijk returns to form, which I have no doubt he will, Thomas Tuchel's Chelsea sort of whimpered towards the end of the season, really, that FA Cup final defeat and potentially almost a Champions League exit um, at the hands of Leicester. But obviously, as we'll discuss, that didn't happen. And of course, they can round things off quite nicely with a Champions League final this weekend. They've been defensively solid in that 3-4-2-1. Again, like City, a glut of rotating attacking talent that can pretty much play in any position, which I think is... Chelsea are probably the closest thing to Manchester City tactically, and uh, that'll be quite some battle. And Leicester, I think if they get another window right, which they look, look as though they're going to bring uh, Bubakar Samare in from uh, Lille at centre-mid, which could see the end of N- one of Ndidi and Thielen's. I think they try to sign up that... Um, new contract for Tielemans, and it seems like a definite top four, top five, which it has been for the past two years. i will probably predict next season it'll be the same top five as it has been for the last two seasons. After this short break, we'll uh, see who rounded out the, the European places in the Premier League this season, who got that lucrative Champions League spot. So let's go back to the Premier League table before December, and in terms of... How it looked, it was just entropy, running wild. It was like a blitz-torn London. There was just teams everywhere, falling, rising. There was no real constants. One of the only constants you could really see was Arsenal's poor positioning. They weren't on the weren't playing on the pitch. They weren't positioned well in the table. Roy Keane, to the point where Roy Keane says they'll probably stay up. And obviously, they would return to the top eight by the end of the season. Leicester City's place in the top four was another constant as well, which they had held, as I said, through game week one right through to the end of the season and unfortunately for Leicester fans they'll, as we'll discuss, dropped out of the the title race, dropped out of the Champions League race. Aside from that, teams could cobble together a few wins and go top Villa, Southampton, Everton, as we've discussed. Meanwhile, others would win 3-13 and and drop from first to ninth in the case of Tottenham, which ultimately caused the end of Jose Mourinho's spell at the uh, Tottenham Hotspur yet-to-be-sponsored stadium. Teams would go through ridiculous peaks and troughs, none more so, really, than Southampton. Eight without defeat in the heady days of October and November had Southampton top of the league, if only briefly. But that became four points from 12 games in the new year. Perhaps another 9-0 defeat to Manchester United at Old Trafford was enough psychological damage. The solid Southampton defence of Bednarek and Vestergaard in the middle, which were two fantastic players at the start of the season, they'd become slightly shaken. Bednarek, of course received a red card in that game as well Kyle Walker-Peters I think has been fantastic of course James Ward-Price has as well maybe it's something to do with the high press the drop-off for the second season something that had been leveled at Leeds United under Marcelo Bielsa of course and speaking of Marcelo Bielsa and Leeds and a high press it didn't seem to fatigue them either and I've seen a fantastic graph which shows Leeds absolutely running away with the running stats and they were the great entertainers at the start of the season. I think that's old hat now. Uh, they'd scored more than Chelsea, but conceded more than Fulham. You'd wait for the drop-off, the famous, famous Bielsa drop-off, the drop-off that's seen them, uh, seen Bielsa lose cup finals back-to-back in 2012 with Athletic Bilbao, the Marseille fantastic drop-off in the uh, 2014-15 league-earned season. And really, they would lose a couple in a row. They'd lose in blocks of two. By trend, they'd lose to likes of Leicester and Palace and Chelsea and West Ham, Tottenham and Brighton, Arsenal Wolves, Villa and West Ham, but they'd always, always bounce back with a win. They very rarely draw, Um, and in fact, all of their draws in this season came at home versus the big six, except Tottenham, who they beat. So they ended the season at home in a world without fans as well, which is even more impressive, undefeated against the big six. They rendered the mighty Super League greedy six to goals from... Sadio Mane and Raheem Sterling at home, they even beat obviously the champions away from home and never looked in any danger of slipping into the relegation scrap, they came back in and looked comfortably at home in mid-table and in fact they only got stronger really, they'd shed that entertainer's tag and they'd become a bit more stoic in their approach, they won six of the last nine, usurping Villa for that top half position and Villa, a team had begun brightly really, they Brought up names from the championship in Matty Cash at right back and Ollie Watkins up front. They proved very good. Emi Martinez staked a claim for the uh, for the best goalkeeper in the league, for the best signing in the league, really. Um, Alfonso Ariola and Elian Melier also did very well in goal two. And of course, we have to mention, we of course have to mention the 7-2. Was it a freak result or was it a trend um, I'd probably say it was neither, really. Liverpool's wavy form probably deserved a hiding at that point. This is a Liverpool with Virgil van Dijk in the team, with Joe Gomez in the team. Admittedly, not with Alisson in the team. Um, whilst Villa were due a reward, did uh, come, out of the, come out of the previous season unscathed in terms of relegation, whether or not you believe that, in terms of the Hawkeye at uh, Villa Park against Sheffield United and Bournemouth being relegated. As a result, that's your opinion. Um, they slugged it out performed well in the window to be fair and they were reaping those rewards early on in the season they'd remain top half for the majority of the season clutching onto those games in hand to say that they could mount a, a European push a Champions League push they were they were supposed to make their resurgence into the top seven but it never came because February hit Jack Grealish was hit with injury he went down with a three month injury he only returned in the last few games of the season Grealish of course their talisman he was injured in a 2-1 loss to Leicester and Villa would win 3 and 13 without him. They were 8th, and wins in those two games in hand at the time would have taken them into Champions League contention. It would have taken them level with the longest sustaining surprise package of the season, and who would have guessed this? West Ham United. West Ham, where they were supposed to be in a battle for relegation, like alongside Villa. Villa, who of course stayed up on the final day of last season with a draw against West Ham at the London Stadium. West Ham had signed Thomas Socek to a permanent deal. His Slavia Prague pal, pal Vladimir Kufal. Joined two at right back. They were supposed to be mid-table, low reaches. They'd struggle. They'd be unfashionable. They had an unfashionable coach working for them in David Moyes. But with three at the back, you had Kufal at right wing back. you got Cresswell and uh, Asa Mas- Masuako both patrolling the left. And it worked. They absolutely destroyed Leicester on Kufal's debut. And even the unfashionable signings. Craig Dawson, he came in, def- debuted halfway through a season kicked the face off a Southampton defender he was a revelation really one of the signs of the season Mikel Antonio continued to score for fun as that uh, focal point for West Ham and you've got Pablo Fornals Jared Bowen, Saeed Benrahma decent in patches in and behind and of course it also helps that they've got one of the brightest central central midfielders in Europe Declan Rice and their continued success their continued involvement in Europe is um, inextricably linked to keeping Declan Rice And of course, David Moyes would turn to his old club in January, to the loan market too, Jesse Lingard. And uh, Lingard was just scoring for fun. He was an absolute revelation. Lingard did need a break from Old Trafford. He needed a fresh ground to do his dancing on. He needed a fresh ground to score his goals on, and he would do that. And uh, their rise was one of the most sustained runs of the season. They had hovered around mid-table before. Four wins on the spin with the inclusion of Jesse Lingard and the continued form of Rice-Suchek. Antonio. Rice and Suchek were probably the best central midfield partnership in the entire league. Lingard's arrival on loan, he got he got two goals against Villa, a win at Villa Park in his debut, beat Tottenham Hotspur, got a win in that gate got the winner in that game, ten points from twelve games, and they, now they were firmly entrenched in that top seven. They were even in a, a Champions League spot for quite some time. By the point that it it was kind of expected that Chelsea under Thomas Tuchel would take it. They even had better form than West Ham. They had a better defensive record than West Ham. And you always kind of thought in the back of your head. Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool would somehow rebound. But West Ham kept going. They'd uh, sort of hopscotch with the Champions League places and fifth place. Uh, they got huge wins over Leeds and Wolves. Jesse Lingard instrumental in that win at Wolves as well. Got a th- superb 3-2 win against Leicester. Lingard bagging two more, of course, which meant a, a, a league double over Leicester. They were still in the Champions League spots with seven to play. They just they seemingly weren't budging. But again, like Villa, when you take one of their talismans out of the team through injury, Declan Rice, he was injured, for, ruled out for a month cruelly. And in the void of Declan Rice, even though Mark Noble is a club legend, they had to play Mark Noble alongside Thomas Suchek. They would gain three points from the next four games, killed the Champions League hopes. But still, they finished sixth. Uh, they got a mini resurgence with a late point at Brighton, which helped them. Secure 6th place effectively. Secure European football effectively. Got a late win at West Brom. And with a game to go, they confirmed European football. Tottenham, they were behind them. They were behind them in 7th. Hoping for that Europa League place, obviously. Going into the last game of the season, it was still available. Similarly to Villa, 3 wins in 13 spell. They killed their Champions League hopes. Killed their title hopes, as it were in the time. But they could still clinch the Europa League or even the Europa Conference League. Five games they had that were pivotal for me in terms of the full season. So from bell to bell, five draws they were. September the 27th, Callum Wilson scored a penalty in the 97th minute, which went, which meant Tottenham won, Newcastle won after leading early. October the 18th, West Ham came to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Three goals in the last eight minutes course the incredible one from Manuel Lanzini in the 94th minute 3-3 it was 3-0 after 16 minutes another draw there another drop points there December the 13th Jeff Slup scored nine minutes to go for Crystal Palace to salvage a draw Tottenham again leading early Wolves came then Roman Sice equalized 86 minutes Tottenham there led after a minute another draw and then at Newcastle Joseph Willock Fantastic run of form, of course, for Newcastle scoring seven goals, seven Premier League goals in a row. Eighty-six minute equaliser overturned a Newcastle lead. Spurs did um, by the half, and Willick's goal late on secured another draw for Tottenham. Fifth draw, so that's ten points they've lost to last ten minute goals, and without those, they'd have finished third. And in three of those, Kane Harry Kane scored, so it means he must be pulling his hair out. There's that clip that's done the rounds on Twitter recently where he's just murmuring to himself what's the fucking point man and uh, maybe a nail in the coffin that is his future at Tottenham is the, the lack of Champions League football again and also the League Cup final loss to Manchester City and a League Cup final loss that five days before that sacked Jose Mourinho Jose Mourinho despite what you might think of him he's got the experience of finals he's got the experience of beating Pep Guardiola as he had done just mere months prior so sacking him maybe it was the Daniel Levy's decision that If we sack him after winning the League Cup, the fans won't forgive us and it'd be a lot harder to sack him, at least with the uh, severance payout that they'd have to do and maybe Levy was getting cold feet on the ability to sack Jose Mourinho, despite obviously winning the League Cup it was still going to be a bad season, financially especially more than anything, which of course is Levy's wheelhouse. Jose, I think he probably had to go, I'll admit that even though I'm a bit of a Mourinho fan and it's his tactics that largely came down to these 10 points dropped from these five games, which is ultimately the difference between Champions League and what is now Conference League football. He does play defensively, but looking at the talents of the team, it's an attacking team playing out of character. Son Heung-min, wildly attacking. Harry Kane, attacking, even though Mourinho had changed up his game, it seemed. But then you've got Gareth Bale on the right. He's just a fantastic, fantastically attacking team. And obviously Ryan Mason being replaced as Mourinho, Mourinho's manager there. I I don't buy that decision either because you've got Chris Powell in there who's a lot more experienced. Ryan Mason could have been his number two. Let's not forget, Ryan Mason, he's still in his 20s. So, I mean, I don't understand. Obviously, it's an interim basis. We still don't know the manager for the new season, which that can't end well as well. I mean, Harry Kane looks to be out. And then will Deli Alley, will Son want to renew their contracts with Tottenham's big name gone? Tottenham have got a £150 million loan from the Bank of England, which that sale of Harry Kane could recoup. They'll be hoping that they can get some names on a part exchange. Obviously, they've got long interest in Jesse Lingard and Anthony Martial from Man United. I doubt Manchester City, one of the only teams that could afford him, let's be honest. They won't want to part exchange any of their players. PSG could be could be uh, an outcome with the Pochettino factor. Um, they could bring... Julian Draxler, the other way in, in terms of the uh, swap deal, maybe Mauro Icardi, maybe, although that seems less likely. So it's a team, with the future of Harry Kane questioned, it's a team definitely at a crossroads. Also at a crossroads, you could save because of the final few final few months of the season, Everton. You've got a good season, a good transfer window that Everton and Carlo Ancelotti had. Four signings in, Ben Godfrey, Allen, Decorey, James, Four signs that they all acclimatise the club well, acclimatise the league well. The home formula has been absolutely drastic. They've won six at home all season and three of those in a, se- in a season where fans haven't been at most of the games. Three of those wins at Goodison Park came with the fans in the in the ground. And out of three of those wins without fans, two of those were won in the first two games. A 5-2 win over West Brom, a 4-2 win over Brighton, which leaves an absolute gaping chasm with the two wins at Goodison Park early on, they had two wins in December with the fans. And then the last go-home game with fans won, which was obviously later on in the season. Without that, you've got a 1-0 win against Southampton in March. Now imagine if they had that home advantage, imagine if they had that home consistency. But yet still going into the final game, they were in a three-team shootout for that conference league place. So even if they had even a average home form, they would have been well in the shout well up for European football which I think with fans especially we've seen it at Anfield as well with that horrific run that they went on Everton would have been in the, in the race they would have been up there with West Ham in terms of fighting for a European position probably knocks Tottenham off the uh, Conference League perch that well established Conference League per- perch that you have and on the final day there were three teams fighting for two Champions League spots three fighting for the one conference league spot on West Ham, just happy in the middle to be playing European football, which was confirmed, all but confirmed in terms of the goal difference. One of those competing higher up were Chelsea. Chelsea, who had led the league in December. Would they be one of this more fleeting league leaders or something a bit more per- permanent? It was the former. Lampard, he was sacked. He'd lost just once prior to December, but in the five weeks of December and early January, which ended Lampard's second spell, they lost away at Everton, they lost away at Wolves Arsenal. And that Arsenal one was very transformative. It was a transformative win for the rivals, also transformative for Chelsea. They would then lose to Leicester away. They'd lost to Manchester City. And that marked the end of Lampard. They'd gone from top to ninth in a month. Then in the following ten Premier League matches, they had Thomas Tuchel. They conceded just two goals. You've got Antonio Rudiger coming in from the cold to be an absolute stalwart at centre-half. You've got uh, Angola Kante revitalised a change in system. You've got from a four-three-three 3 3 to a 3-4-2-1. They were pushing for the FA Cup and Champions League, period in both of those finals. It was a little bit more than a hint of 2012 about this, changing the manager halfway through and getting to the two cup finals. that like They would win in 2012, of course. We know the FA Cup final. They wouldn't win that. This defensive record in the Premier League, it was impressive, but then it would obviously come to a head with a 5-2 loss at home to West Brom, one of the shock results of the season that I mentioned at the top of the show. That and the loss to Arsenal, which led into the final game, it meant that Chelsea, even though they were in third, they were scrapping with Leicester City and Liverpool for one of those final Champions League spots. And I think this return to form of Chelsea, in particular Angola Kante, has been because of the shape. His teams, if you look back at Kante's sort of career, his teams perform better when he's in a two- So Leicester played a 4-4-2, Chelsea's title that Kante won. They were in a 3-4-3, which obviously infers that he was playing in a two there under Kante. And France player, lopsided 4 2 one sort of diamond hybrid. And Kante won the World Cup, got to a European Championships final in there. They say that he does the work of two players. So why not use him in a two, which is, if he's doing the work of two players, it's more like a three push more players up front and whilst people have been raving about your Rudigers, your Tiago Silvers, Mount Pulisic as well, Kante is what makes them go for me and he's the reason why they've make why they were about to make this final day push into the Champions League. So in the final day you have got Leicester needed to better Chelsea or Liverpool score to get into the Champions League. Chelsea, crucially, lost out at Villa Park, fairly comfortably in the end though to be fair, what 2-1, got a Got a late goal from Ben Chirwell in that one. Meanwhile, Sadio Mane bagged a double against Crystal Palace. Mo Salah missing out on the golden boot there to Harry Kane. Um, They were comfortably in the top four by the end of things, actually, and finished third against All Odds, which left Leicester against Spurs. A win for them, coupled with Chelsea's loss to Villa, would take them fourth, and they were leading through two Jamie Vardy penalties, scoring again right at the correct time. Kane getting that golden boot with his equaliser, but with 14 minutes left, Leicester were in fourth. They were winning 2-1. But then, of course, Kasper Schmeichel flapped from a set-piece. Bale got a double and Spurs somehow won 4-2, which in turn killed Leicester City's Champions League dreams. It killed Arsenal's, I'm sure, fanciful UEFA Conference League dreams. Arsenal were winning. They were finishing seventh. They were winning 2-0 against Brighton. There was no tottering today. And it's the very first season since, I think, 1995. Sorry, 1996. ...where Arsenal haven't been in Europe... ...and we all know what came after that... ...the tenure of Arsene Wenger... ...a transformative manager... ...maybe Mikel Arteta will be that transformative manager... ...and of course a point on that final day... ...was enough for West Ham to be in the Europa League... ...but they r- run up a uh, 3-0 win against Southampton... ...just hammer the point home... ...that's a horrific uh, pun there... ...so with, the, with Leicester winning the Cup... ...and getting their name on a trophy... A lot of people have been saying that Leicester City I'm now part of a big six. Can Spurs or Arsenal be considered big anymore? And my point is that, yes, they can, because let's get it straight. Big six doesn't mean best six, doesn't mean the most successful six. It means those with the most money. And in a world, really, where Champions League qualification is more important than trophies, it brings in more money. Leicester have not made the Champions League. They've made it once, and that was off the back of that Premier League win. They've bottled the Champions League, for the lack of a better phrase there, twice. They improved from 62 points to 66. They're simply a well-run club amongst the clown cars that are Spurs and Arsenal, and uh, other clubs that look to break that glass ceiling I think ought to follow Leicester City's model, uh, buying low, selling high. Teams like Leeds, Villa, Everton, Wolves, who could be on that, who could make that surge up into the Champions League places. Leeds, if they have a succession plan for Bielsa, who... Seemingly, if you look back at his history, won't stick around in the long term. They'll need a succession plan for him. River Plate's manager Gallardo could be an option. Sam Pauli of uh, Marseille could also be an option. Wolves, they have, they need to start a succession plan of their own. They need a uh, better squad depth. One injury, for example, Raúl Jiménez wrecked them. It looked as the looked as Bruno Lage from uh, Benfica, formerly of Benfica, which is of course a Josh Mendes. George Mendes' client, surprisingly enough, he looks to be in the running for that Wolves job. It might well be announced before this episode goes out. Everton, they could make the surge if Marcel Brands continues that transfer reform of uh, leaving behind the central attacking midfielder's vibes, window strategy, whatever it was, and remains patient with Ancelotti because Ancelotti is a proven winner. He's the joint record holder of the amount of Champions Leagues with three alongside Bob Paisley and Zidane, potentially Pep as well if you listen to this after Saturday and Villa, if they continue on the up, upward trajectory, and of course, crucially keep Jack Grealish. Um, so, what happens with Spurs and Arsenal next? Spurs, their future completely hinges on Harry Kane's future. What deal they can do if they are to sell him, and how how they're going to keep him happy if they do keep him? Which, of course, boils down to Champions League football. Best players want to be playing in the best competitions. Um, Depend on who they bring in in, in terms of going the other way. Swap so deal with a with PSG for Icardi would be could be a great sort of deal. Icardi is a poacher so they could sort of return to that four two three one with son Deli, Alley. And uh, maybe not Bale, Bale looks to be set to uh set to stay at Real Madrid. Or perhaps Harry Kane goes to Real Madrid with Gareth Bale going the other way, which seems very, very unlikely. Um, in terms of Arsenal they say trust the process. Um form, form has been patchy but In terms of ending the season, well, they've ended it very well. And in terms of the form book, they are second in the past X amount of games that I uh, I was uh, flicking through on Twitter. Trust the process, I think for me, that should rather be trust the youth. Kieran Tierney at left back, one of their best players this season. Emil smith one of their best players this season. But Saka likewise. Gabriel Martinelli will be one of their best players next season. And I think there needs to be a distinct change from the Obamiang's, of course, he's had a, a bad season in terms of um, malaria, but he's also not. He has also been in the headlines for the wrong reasons, and especially after being burned by the contract extension of Mesut Ozil and having to ship him out forcefully, paying 90% of his wages, which is an absolute disgrace. They'd look like they're going down the same route with Obamiang. and they, Arsenal should be trust, interested in that youth. They've got a great academy. You've got Willock to come back as well if he wants to stay you got Maitland-Niles coming back as well if he wants to stay. And it's a big turning point, A lot, like a lot of clubs really, like uh, Wolves, like Crystal Palace, like Spurs. They're also on that crossroads where this summer is absolutely crucial financially and also on the pitch as well. And in terms of a surprise package, I packaged up Brighton as a surprise this season in my predictions at the start of the season for 10th, but ultimately XG worked against them. So who's going to be the surprise package in the top half next season? Is it going to be Brighton? I think they're a striker away from converting those chances. If they keep Graham Potter, if he doesn't go to the likes of Tottenham, like he's been uh, rumoured to be, Norwich could easily could easily be a surprise package. The slingshot approach that worked for Burnley in going down, then coming back up. They've uh, got a very good uh, sporting director there, in Stuart Webber, who's obviously playing things very sensibly, like the uh, Leicester approach that I discussed earlier. They've got a good core of players, and if they continue to spend wisely, if they keep Wendy if they keep players like Max Aarons, Timu Pukki perhaps as well, Todd Cantwell, they've got a very good club there. Crystal Palace with Hodgson leaving, I think, is anyone's guess really. Let's be honest. Uh, if if not, them, why not? Why not them? They, they could easily, they could easily do something like that. And Wolves, of course, Bruno Lage could be uh, coming in, and it's a club with another manager leaving, but with a club, a very young club, and a club that with Raúl Jiménez seemingly coming back next season, a club that should be in the top half again. It could go one or two ways. They'll be either be in the European positions or they'll struggle. And my final club that I, I think could do it, maybe, depending on what happens in this summer, off the pitch, of course, i.e. with the futures of Steve Bruce and Mike Ashley with the club Newcastle. You've got Callum Wilson, Sam Maximan, Miguel Almiron, other new faces that haven't hit the heights this season that could with another season at um, St. James's Park, I'm talking uh, Ryan Fraser, Jamal Lewis, etc. Um, Fabian Sher is a great defender who could easily be part of a top half Premier League club. With all those names, if they keep all of them fit, which they haven't admittedly this season, perhaps under a different manager because I think Steve Bruce, although yeah, they finished 12, I think his time with the fans, I think it's over. Um, no matter what he does, it's going to be, his bridges have been burnt. So I think Maybe with a different manager, especially with a different owner, Newcastle could be challenging them uh, European positions. We'll be looking further down the, the league table after this short break and we'll be looking at the teams that went down from the Premier League this season. Welcome back. So now we are going to the basement of the Premier League. So let's start from the bottom up. We may as well. Sheffield United, they were cut adrift for a while. They had on record the worst start ever to a Premier League season, potentially one of the worst starts to a English league season ever. But like many others, they ruled one injury and that was Jack O'Connell and they were completely changed without him really. Um, everyone bangs on about Brighton O'H- and Hove Albion's XG differentially. They've got a, an XG of 51 to 40 goals. Sheffield United have a XG of 30 goals to 19 before the, uh, before the end of the season there. And that is exactly the same ratio. So, Tensions at board level, level, of course, didn't help. The exit of Chris Wilder certainly didn't help one of their best managers ever. And it left the fans in total apathy with the uh, final few weeks of the season. The season completely in tatters. Uh, Paul Heckingbottom just a bridge, seemingly. Um, Alexander Blessing, a potential successor, couldn't get enough points, work permit-wise. Right- and it looks as though Sheffield tonight will be starting again. Next season, as it stands, and joining them in the Championship will be West Brom. The future looks bright in the... Uh, in the close season, Diangana, Pereira, they were both uh, loaned to permanent as well. Callum Grant's was as well. Slavan Bilic was seemingly the man to keep them afloat, but ultimately, one win in the first ten killed his tenure. Losses to uh, to Crystal Palace and Newcastle confirmed this. The decision made before the heroic one-one draw at the Etihad. From then, Sam Allardyce took over Coll- collective groans from uh, fut- football hipsters, and they were immediately proved right. At home, they were absolutely woeful. 3-0 against Villa. 3 nil, 5 nil, sorry, against Leeds. 4-0 against Arsenal. 5-0 against Man City. And the first point at home was a non-too-creditable, really. 2-2 draw against Fulham. And for all the disaster that was put at the foot of Sheffield United, West Brom were only four points ahead of them at this stage. And... They needed a kickstart to keep them going. They they were nine points off safety with 17 to go. They looked doomed, like Sheffield United. And the Allardyce plan, and let's not forget, he's never actually got relegated from the Premier League, didn't work. He was relegated. Let's not forget, this is actually his uh, second relegation on his CV, his first one with Notts County in the mid-90s. But as much as I might not like Allardyce's methods, might not think that he has a place in the game in the top flight now, they would have stayed up with him all season. Um, and excuse this if you are a football, if you're not a football hipster, their rolling XG was in the toilet prior to what he uh, to when he came. Their fullest, first glimmer of hope was that one-one draw against Manchester United, and Allardyce tapped. He would blamed anything that he could so, sort of get a leg up to keep his safe face. Really, um, he would blamed Brexit in terms of not being able to get the players they wanted, but he still managed to get a couple of loan signings in. Obviously, the depressed market as well didn't help. okay Kondshlu. At centre mid, fantastic loan signing. And by Dejan, could have been something if it had been given a lot more. Came in the summer perhaps. He was great up front for a time. Ainsley Maitland-Niles as well proved um, wise beyond his years as it seemed. Um, they, those signs were beginning to take effect. Dianya scored against Manchester United in a draw. They cobbled together a win against Brighton which meant five points in three matches and potential survival. But... Losses to Everton, losses to Palace, draw at home to Newcastle, nil-nil, in a time when Newcastle were really at rock bottom there. Then things seemingly changed. Um, I said Maitland-Niles, wise beyond his years, right? He led a speech, kicking his teammates up the ass, to put it bluntly, really. Um... Led a team meeting, it's 23, let's not forget. They then won the next match 5-2 at Stamford Bridge against a team that had famously conceded two in 10 games. Then West Brom looked absolutely irresistible in a 3-0 win at home to an admittedly toiling West Southampton, but it was still a 3-0 win where they did look very impressive. But then, of course, the mini-run ended. Two points from the final seven games, Allardyce resigned. They were back to the championship. He didn't want to be in it for the long term. He says he's not a long-term manager. Players out of this that deserve to be in the Premier League, Mateus Pereira, I do like him. Jukoslu, he's I think he's fantastic can do good things with Turkey this summer. Uh, Sam Johnson in net deserves another crack off Premier League football. They would all be great signings for a Premier League team. Towards the end, towards the bottom of the table uh, for the Premier League, maybe even mid-table, um, teams like Palace. Teams that are looking to rebound and change things drastically and the third team that would go down joining West Brom Sheffield United in the championship the team that came up with West Brom the third team to go down Fulham Fulham were absolutely hopeless early on let's get that straight four points from the first nine draw against Sheffield United win against West Brom so beating getting points off teams around them which was no feat really um loans such as uh Lookman, Luckman Lamina Ariola. to be fair turned out to be decent signings purchase of Kenny Tettie tossing at the uh, back as well and Anthony Robinson at left back I think they're all Premier League quality players and if they could get them going they could probably give it a good go Scott Parker I think he's a good manager and I don't think like Eddie Howe last season I don't think a relegation should uh, should be harmful on his CV a bit like Allardyce with his uh, Notts County relegation in the 90s didn't work too badly for him in the end of course Alexander Mitrovic, I think if he wouldn't have had a stop-start season, Fulham would have done very well. Josh Madger, of course, came in on loan, had a bit of a bounce first uh, first game, got goals against uh, Everton. It looked like Fulham would be on the uh, resurgence. And uh, Joe Chimanderson, it, he, I think he was a very good central defender for Fulham. Um, but as we see towards the end, you've got Joe Bryan scoring at Old Trafford. and it looks as though Fulham definite, definitively have a championship team that they retain, a sort of... Um, in need of emergency break glass team, where they've got definitely a championship team. Then they've got a a, a load of loan signings or signings that they'll just ditch when they get relegated for the inevitable one-year Premier League stay. This is the second time in three seasons that they've done this. And of course, these signings couldn't do enough. Georgie e. Manderson looks like um, he'll be back in the Premier League if um, if he chooses to leave Leon, who of course are playing Europa League football next season. Find out more about that tomorrow on our European Leagues uh, review. Um, Andre Frank-Gangriza, I think he was their star man all season Fulham. He deserves top flight football. And the problem with Fulham was they'd follow up wins against Leicester and Everton with the yawning chasm of 12 games without a win. They just couldn't turn draws into wins. Of those 12 winless games that I said, eight of them were drawn. They They did have a mini revival. They won at Anfield. And at that point, there's one point between them and safety. It's a rather goal difference between them and safety. One point behind Newcastle. Newcastle didn't have the momentum. Brighton was still struggling with XG. Fulham had the momentum. People were pointing their head retroactively. Uh, Fulham, Newcastle on the final day. People were even saying that Fulham might even be safe and such was Newcastle's form. and um, Brighton might join them in the swamp too. Uh, but between that, um, Anfield and the Potential Titanic relegation class on the final day. Fulham picked up two points from nine games and never before had all three relegation places been confirmed as early as game week 35. And for all the Ferrari and complete boiling hatred of a failed takeover and Steve Bruce staying at the club, Newcastle stayed up, stayed up quite comfortably in the end. Their best three of San Maximan, Wilson, and Almiron weren't able to remain. Maintain fitness, and it was key that as soon as they came back, it was quite telling that as soon as they came back to full fitness, Newcastle returned to form. They go nine winless between December and January, seven winless between February and April, and they never actually went into relegation zone. And April proved to be a landmark month for uh, for Steve Bruce, manager of the month. They came to draws with Tottenham and Liverpool. They beat Burnley. They beat West Ham. All strong teams, really. Um, clinch survival with ease in the end, smash the 40-point barrier. Um, Is this a success? Of course it isn't. This is Newcastle United, one of the biggest teams in the land. They shouldn't be aiming for 40 points. They should be aiming for 60, 70, even 80. And this is why Newcastle fans are distraught, why they're quick to jump on the club, the owners, the manager, whenever they're not performing at the heights that they expect. And it's not a case of uh, knowing your place in football. They should not be fighting for survival. They should be fighting for European spots. Mid-table, hell, that should not be an objective. They finish 13th, 13th, 13th and 12th. That's not good enough. And Newcastle fans will be wanting top seven, he just, even to play good football. Like, you just don't want... Newcastle should not... It's like Liverpool being in a relegation scrap season after season. That'd get nipped in the bud quite quickly. But when you've got a, an owner like Mike Ashley, he's he he's doesn't mind... He just pulls his checkbook out when they get relegated to the championship and it's fine and they'll get promoted first time of asking. They've done that twice under Mike Ashley. Almost had to do it again. Obviously, in this time, things have soured to such a point that he actually wants to sell the club. And it looked as though Saudi Arabia would come in and sort of quench Newcastle fans first with the uh, the signings that have been uh, rumoured. Obviously, they're not going to get the big best of the best, F um, FFP, etc., but they at least deserve to be top half at uh, a bare minimum. A mid-table hell is um, Brighton and Burnley's fate, both curious beasts, really. Beasts that I never really feared for in terms of relegation, in all honesty. Fans of Burnley might have been twitching after that leveraged buyout around Christmas, which meant that Premier League survival is now an absolute necessity. It leaves them with an, an absolute financial imperative to remain in the top flight, but they've got a manager there, Sean Dyche, just makes Burnley look completely assured they know exactly how they're going to play they know exactly who's going to play in a 4-4-2 and and it's an absolute success for a club of their size that they just exist and go under the radar in the Premier League this isn't a gigantic club like Newcastle but they mix in the same circles higher circles usually Burnley have had European football more routinely than Newcastle in the past decade it's a credit for Deitch that their the aim at their current level should be survival every season they do it and do it with a plumb really mid table top half they've had palace. They've done a similar job under Roy Hodgson and others. And it's why I've not even mentioned them yet. The only reason why they get a mention is because Roy Hodgson isn't the manager anymore. And the fact that they, in the pre- previous three times that they've been in the Premier League, went straight back down in 2013, 14, they stayed up and they've then gone on to hit the heights of FA cup final, admittedly lost, but an FA cup final nonetheless. And routinely, being safe in the Premier League is no mean feat, especially when you've got exciting teams in the Championship coming up. But Palace, Southampton as well, Burnley, they always seem safe. Southampton probably a bit more glamorous in their football, they've been top half a lot since promotion. European football as well, Koeman, Pochettino. Now I've got Hassan Hassan Huttel, Hassan, Hassan rather, playing a, an extraordinary brand of uh, European football, continental football. This is the sort of company that Burnley aim to keep, and they continue to do so. Brighton may have wobbled a little bit more than Burnley, but you know their underlying numbers, the XG, etc., etc. It's become boring to discuss now. But those are the—that's uh, what makes them going to be a mid-table team under Graham Potter if they continue to do that. And um, Brighton put four on Manchester City for Christ's sake. And uh, with that, I think I have covered the twenty teams, some more than others, admittedly. Um, but in terms of who's going to get sucked into a relegation battle next season, I said Palace and Newcastle could mount a a push for the the European places because why not just as I named them in the top half surprise packages European places I can also say Palace and Newcastle could get relegated this season because again like so many other teams crossroads financially on the pitch it entirely hinges on this transition in the summer whether Newcastle get a new owner a new manager whether Palace have a good window in terms of replacing all those out of contract players replace a very good manager are they going to do it who knows and in terms of the promoter clubs who's going to be Who's going to perform the best out of those? Norwich, the slingshot approach to Burnley, if that, is, uh, if that is seen just like Burnley did, they'll be in they'll be in Europe in a couple of years' time and it could work. They've got a fantastic team, fantastic off the field too. Um, the numbers suggest that they will be all right in the Premier League because when they came up the last time, defensively, they were all over the place. It'd be like a score more than you sort of vibe. This season, they've been better defensively, which is a good omen for, uh, for their time in the Premier League next season. Watford, they've retained the majority of their team. Ismail start in the Premier League excites me if they can keep him. They've got a fantastic team. They'll put up more of a fight than the three who went down this season, surely. This weekend, we bid goodbye to, uh, to Barnsley and Bournemouth, which means Bournemouth, there will be no three relegated teams going straight back up. So it means that Brentford or Swansea. So Brentford... They'll probably do a survival job, but there's no reason why they couldn't kick on for a second season. They've got a fantastically young team. They've got a great team there. Tarek Fossu, Brennan Mbwemo, of course, at the heart of it. Eve Tony, Pontus Janssen's a good leader as well. Didn't get to go up with Leeds last season, um, but could easily do it this season. Of course, the playoff final is this week, this Friday, this Saturday, rather. Swansea, if they keep Steve Cooper, who's been touted for jobs like Crystal Palace, They'll be hovering around lower mid-table. They've got a good base. They've got a good... Um, they will struggle, of course. They'll, they're not going to pull up any trees. It depends, of course, who they, who they sign, who they can uh, retain on loan because, of course, Steve Cooper, who is, in his previous life as England under-17s manager, he's been relying on the loans market quite a lot to uh, maintain that football. And if they do get promoted, they'll be akin to Watford and probably a bit lower than Norwich because I think Norwich will have a very good season next season. In terms of my Premier League preview... Right at the start of this season, September the 10th, I released it. I had the following table. I got the top four bang on. Well, not bang on, but I got the correct four. I had uh, Manchester City first, Liverpool second, Chelsea third, and Manchester United fourth. And of course, that finished Manchester United in second, Manchester City first, Liverpool third, and Chelsea fourth. In the in the uh, European place, I had Arsenal in fifth, Tottenham in sixth, and Wolves in seventh, of course. Only out of those, Tottenham got a European place with Arsenal in eighth and Wolves all the way down there in 13th in terms of the relegated clubs I had West Brom Fulham and West Ham now of course I underestimated West Ham I think everybody surely did um, but I got two out of the three correct obviously Sheffield United overestimated them because they've plummeted like a stone I should have really seen through the second season syndrome there really um, I had Leicester in 8th place so underestimated them again do so at your peril for this season and I think I probably went too traditional in terms of my top six because i had the big six quote unquote as the top six maybe i'm not going to do that next season but i do think the likes of arsenal will come good again wolves will come good again um tottenham depends entirely on what they do this summer and um in terms of looking forward we've got a very exciting month or so ahead for the channel new things new platforms keep in tune keep looking at my Twitter for that countdown that keeps counting down to something next Monday. Anyway, we'll be covering the Euros, the European Championship, the postponed European Championships every day. We've got a video locked and loaded for each of the 24 teams that we're going to preview on YouTube each day on our podcast feed. We're going to preview the tournament right the way from June the 7th and we're going to review the tournament right the way through to its conclusion on June, July the 11th. There's some restructuring following that, but news of that will come before the end of the month. Until then, we've got a Leagues podcast review. Tomorrow, we've got Notice Nostalgia, of course, as always, on Wednesday. Until then, see you there.